0: Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360, I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, as the region struggles to secure and distribute COVID-19 vaccines, several countries in the Americas are also scrambling to organize safe and fair elections. Today, our Wilson Center experts will discuss how governments are preparing for this year's super cycle of elections, and how the diverse responses to the pandemic are shaping voters' preferences across the region. First up, we turn our attention to the political repercussions faced by President Bolsonaro in Brazil stemming from his handling of the pandemic. Later, our panelists will provide thoughts on recently held elections in Ecuador and Peru, and also forthcoming elections across the region, why these are so crucial to the hemisphere and beyond. But first, let's welcome back our regulars. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director, Benjamin Gaden. Hi there, John. Hi, Benjamin. Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Hi, Cindy. Mexico Institute Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Hi, Andrew. Welcome back. And Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands.
1: Hello, bonjour, John.
0: Thanks, Chris. Hi to you, too. That was Chris speaking Canadian, for those of you who need translation. And the Slater Family Fellow and Senior Associate for the Brazil Institute, Anya Prusa. Hi, Anya. Hi, John. Hello, Anya. And I want to begin with you, Anya, if I could. Uh, in, in my script said uh, Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic, and my brain was screaming mishandling. Uh, what is happening in Brazil, and how did it get to this crisis point?
2: Yes, so the situation with the pandemic in Brazil is incredibly serious. There's been over 350,000 fatalities due to COVID 19. Um, The average daily death toll at the moment is about 3,000. And it has, at certain points in recent weeks, hit 4,000 deaths a day. Um, And these are, you know, the highest numbers in the world right now. Doctors Without Borders actually called it a humanitarian crisis. And I can tell you, John, you know, from my conversations with colleagues and um, with family members in Brazil, that people are incredibly worried and many of them feel that their government and President Jair Bolsonaro has not done enough to control the COVID-19 pandemic, has not based the government's response on scientific evidence and recommendations. And in fact, we've seen that Bolsonaro's approval rating has gone down in recent months, Um, His approval rating right now is about 30%, which is the lowest in his presidency. And at the same time, he is facing significant political pressures. So former President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva recently had um, his corruption convictions overturned. Um, And so Lula is now eligible to run for re-election in 2022. If the election were held tomorrow, polls show that Lula would win. And so that's definitely going to be on Bolsonaro's mind, even though we have a year and a half between now and the actual election. Um, You know, the other source of real political pressure is actually coming from Bolsonaro's allies in Congress. So he has an alliance with the central or the big center, which is a group of rent seeking political parties that tend to align with whoever the government of the day is. However, This political alliance is a bit tenuous at the moment. Um, Congress has not been happy with the way that Bolsonaro has handled the pandemic. And in fact, we saw at the end of March that the Speaker of the House, Arthur Lira, gave a pretty clear warning to Bolsonaro. He said he was putting out the yellow flag in a soccer reference and warned the president that Congress has certain political remedies at its disposal if the government did not get a handle on the pandemic. What
0: is that? that? A thinly veiled threat of impeachment?
2: Yes, and not that veiled yeah, either. That I thin. think everyone understood yeah. what what he was saying. Um, Bolsonaro certainly understood it. I mean, less than a week later, we saw him do a major cabinet reshuffle in an effort to, you know, shore up support in key cabinet positions, and he also brought in a member of Congress, one of Arthur Lira's allies. Um, to serve as his cabinet secretary in charge of that relationship with Congress.
0: Another president in the hemisphere, a populist president uh, by the name of Donald Trump, never recovered from his handling of the pandemic. If you look at exit polls on why Joe Biden won the presidency, you know, I want to we'll go back to Brazil in a minute on you. But first, I want to ask Benjamin and some of the others about the the regional reaction and why other countries are concerned you know we talk about distinct countries as if borders exist in nature and the reality is the virus doesn't know wh- whether it's in uh brazil argentina or wherever it might be benjamin how how is the region reacting
3: with great concern, John. I mean, Anya is focusing understandably on the domestic politics of the mishandling of the pandemic in Brazil. Um, that's of less interest to countries like neighboring Uruguay, which are thinking about why this far into the pandemic, they're facing the highest daily caseloads they've seen. And the reason is this so-called P1 variant that you know emerged from Brazil and is now spreading throughout South America, which is now the global epicenter of COVID-19. This is of concern to the United States as well. I mean, there's always this fear that some variants could emerge given the scale of spread in a country the size of Brazil that would render ineffective or less effective some of the vaccines that have been developed. So really everyone in the world, and particularly Brazil's South American neighbors, have a stake in Brazil getting this virus back under control.
0: Cindy, is is Bolsonaro the skunk at this garden party or does he have company? Are there others in the region who have mishandled the pandemic?
4: Well. No country really has gotten a good handle on the pandemic um Brazil, I think stands out as does Mexico in terms of a lack of leadership in dealing uh with the population dealing with um uh health measures to stem the spread of the pandemic um and certainly in terms of vaccine rollout uh but bolsonaro, I think really is a is a standout case, but that said, even the countries that Did well initially, such as Peru, or seem to have. Um, you know, a leg up on vaccination, such as Chile, which was in the top five globally in terms of the percentage of its population that had been vaccinated. Even even Chile is facing these huge new outbreaks. And some of it is the, the new strain from Brazil. It's also the end of the South American summer when people were traveling. There's pandemic fatigue all over the region. People are just sick of these severe lockdowns. Um, but I would say Brazil followed by Mexico stand out as countries that have really um, botched
0: the, the leadership issue. Andrew, you want to weigh in on the on Mexico's role in botching the pandemic?
5: Sure. Well, I, I, I think um, it occurs to me what, what Cindy just said is, is absolutely right. And maybe it's a question of some countries um, attempted to address it. And while they haven't been perfectly successful they made an effort and there are things that can be pointed to. And then you look at Brazil and and Mexico, where the leadership initially seemed to want to disavow the existence of the pandemic. And so maybe at the end of the day, nobody has done it well, but maybe you get brownie points for at least having acknowledged it was a problem and tried to fix it as opposed to trying to wish it away.
0: Yeah. Uh, Chris, you've made the point in in previous discussions on the pandemic that you know, Canada and other richer nations have a role here in providing assistance. But Canada itself does not have a robust percentage of the population vaccinated.
1: Yes, I think in this sense, although Canada is wealthy, it has a very limited capacity to make vaccines. And this is an interesting challenge for them. Over a number of years, Canada, with a public health system, has tried to favor generic manufacturers to help reduce the cost domestic generic manufacturers helped reduce the cost of major medicines and while that makes sense at one level it's led to less investment from international pharmaceutical giants like Pfizer, uh, AstraZeneca, Moderna and others. So at the same time other parts of the western world have really been part of discovering vaccines and getting them out to people. Canada's found itself trying to buy those vaccines on the global market and that's uh, that, that's not really their fault, but it is something that's made Trudeau's life much harder and frustrated Canadians who would like to see their vaccination rates closer to the U.S. or, or even the U.K.
0: Anya, so you've heard your colleagues describe a circumstance where there's not necessarily, the cavalry isn't necessarily coming to Brazil's aid. Uh, where can it turn for assistance?
2: Um, Brazil is definitely in a hard spot. We, we have seen over the last month Um, that Bolsonaro has become more interested in looking for help. Um, So he applied for Brazil to receive vaccines through the COVAX facility. Um, He entered into deals with Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson to secure more doses for Brazil, um, but because Brazil waited so long to do a lot of these agreements, it is going to take months before they start seeing significant numbers of vaccine doses arriving within the country. Brazil has some domestic manufacturing. Um, the Butantan Institute and Fio Cruz as well are two really highly regarded medical institutes with a long track record of producing vaccines. Um, but, you know, the challenge is getting a lot of the inputs, the, the reactive, elements of the vaccine that you need. And those are being imported from abroad, from China, from India. And those are countries that need them for their own uh, vaccine production. So Brazil is really between a rock and a hard place when it comes to getting more vaccine doses right now. And Brazil needs doses right now to control a pandemic that really is continuing to get worse.
0: You you know, we have a general agreement here that the, the virus isn't going to limit itself to any nation's borders. So Benjamin, where is the cavalry? should other countries be paying intense attention to the crisis in Brazil so that this doesn't spiral out of control
3: They should and particularly the United States I mean I think it's easy to sit back and and blame Brazil for its own problems and it has you know, from the very beginning, mismanaged this public health crisis. But the reality is, is this impacts the United States. There's moral arguments, there's public health arguments, there's economic arguments. And if you look at the numbers of doses, the entire Latin America has administered less than 80 million doses. The United States alone, it's about 212 million. So the disparity hurts the U.S. image, hurts the U.S. interests. And I think, you know, sooner rather than later, the United States really should be the cavalry coming to the rescue. Again, whether or not Brazil's responsible for this problem or not.
0: All of you have either spoken or written or both about the, the politics of the pandemic and how China and Russia are using this to potentially get a leg up on the U.S. in some regions of the country. What about those foreign influences or at least foreign aid Uh, potential uh, sources of foreign aid. What about those in Brazil, Anya?
2: Well, what's really interesting is that um, Brazil, uh, through the state of Sao Paulo, had partnered with a Chinese company, Sinovac, Um, to produce CoronaVac, right? Which is actually being domestically produced in Brazil. Um, But at the same time that this collaboration was happening at the state level, we were seeing tensions between the federal government and China. Um, President Bolsonaro has been highly skeptical of Chinese influence within Brazil, uh, despite the fact that China is Brazil's largest trade partner. Um, And so this has complicated, I think as well, um, Chinese support for Brazil in this moment.
0: I want to get all of your thoughts uh, as we wrap up this first segment on, is this a sea change for Brazilian politics? Is the, are the struggles of Bolsonaro going to create trend lines versus headlines? Uh, and, and Anya, I'm going to save you the last word on this and get some thoughts from your colleagues first. Let's start in the far north with Christopher Sands. Do you, do you detect that we are looking at trend lines here, Chris, or, or headlines?
1: Well, I think it all depends on the lessons learned that we take from this. We've sort of gone into a giant social experiment around the world as we've tried to respond to really unprecedented events, not just a pandemic, but a shutdown of our normal economy and a public health effort that really has reached deep into the lives of ordinary people around the world. Just as the pandemic, COVID-19, has hit hard people whose pre-existing conditions uh, left them vulnerable to the pandemic, countries that had problems going into this, whether it was development deficits or or problems of corruption or problems of of lack of infrastructure, all paid a much heavier price. So as we move out of this uh, this pandemic, I think the key is is to see what lessons we can draw from it so that it never happens again or at least never happens again like this. We have to be more prepared next time.
0: Andrew your thoughts and and this notion that we can be collectively better prepared that there can be more integration of approach among countries are you hopeful in that regard
5: I'm I'm definitely hopeful i i think as chris was saying i i think it's necessary that we, that we learn uh, from the past we've tried that in north america we tried after the 2009 h1n1 uh uh, flu pandemic, and there were a, a lot was written, a lot of ideas about what should be done and, and how we should prepare. And if you read those reports now, you see that yes, some was done, but a lot of it was ignored. So I, I think we definitely have to learn. Um, we have to learn from that experience. I, I'd also point out a really interesting study that the University of uh, California, San Francisco's. Institute for Global Health Science has just released, actually one on Mexico and one on the U.S., looking at the pandemic response at the behest of the WHO. Uh, really two fascinating reports, and and uh, I was reminded of this by one of Chris's comments, because um, the Mexico report in particular points out the deficiencies and the disruptions in the healthcare system, uh, particularly when, when Lopez Obrador tried to revise the healthcare system. That exacerbated the response. So I I think it goes back to a point I've made many times, which is that you have to fund your healthcare system before there's a problem and not after. Benjamin, your thoughts? I think
3: the argument that Latin America has weak institutions, um, you know, has really gained a lot of unfortunate evidence right now, and particularly the cases that we've talked about, Mexico and Brazil, you have leaders who have shown disdain for these institutions who've wanted to concentrate power, and they have managed the pandemic worse than practically all other governments. So I think it is a message to voters as well, the dangers of electing people who feel like they embody the state and the state doesn't need any competing sources of power or administrative capabilities.
0: Cindy, your thoughts, uh, and, and we'll try to limit it to Brazil in this segment, because when we come back, we'll talk about how these trend lines might be affecting other countries' politics.
4: Sure. Well, I think that what's happening is um, the pandemic is deepening this sense among the public in Latin America, in Brazil, but uh, but in many other countries, that government uh, officials just are incapable of addressing the concerns that affect people's daily lives and and i think that you know to the extent that there's been a lot of talk about a crisis of representation and all that kind of thing which we'll talk about in a moment when we talk about uh, peru in particular um you know the um the the disaffection you know of publics with their leaders elected or not their alienation from the political system i think is going to be a long term uh effect of this and in terms of whether brazil represents a headline or a trend line i mean I, I do think that while there are common denominators that all the countries are facing this sharp economic decline public health crisis you know the way each country responds really depends on their own uh, politics and you know there's a lot of talk about going into next year's election in brazil of a, of a showdown between former president lula and current president Bolsonaro, that will again be a very polarized uh, political debate. So, you know, that's not a trend line so much. I mean, I think that's very unique to uh, Brazil, but nonetheless shows the kind of ideological cleavages um, that continue to exist in the region.
0: Thanks, Cindy. Anya, when we first met at Ye Old Wilson Center, the topic when we discussed Brazil was about the BRICS and all of the economic potential. It seems like an alternate universe now. What do you see as far as the future of Brazilian politics as a result of, of what's occurred?
2: Brazil really sits at a crossroad um, more than, than any moment, I think, in in recent years where, you know, there are different choices. Um, you know, as Cindy was saying, Brazilian voters feel incredibly disaffected. They do not feel that their government represents them um, or is taking the steps needed to to protect them. And, and, you know, that's not just the pandemic, but also the economic crisis that you mentioned, John. Um, The real question is, you know, a year and a half from now, is this going to be a race between, you know, Lula and Bolsonaro, who both represent in some ways the past, um, Or are Brazilians going to come up with an alternate, right, a candidate who is looking towards the future, who can unite um, some of these different parts of Brazilian society? And I think we don't have a clear answer on that yet. But I will say that I have been encouraged um, you know, the silver lining, right, has been the incredible innovation that we're seeing within civil society and within the private sector right now in responding to the pandemic and responding to the needs of the moment. There's been incredible collaboration um, between, you know, in the healthcare space, for example, between private hospitals and public hospitals, trying to make sure that the system continues to function. And a lot of people care really deeply and are working really hard to push Brazil forward. And so for me, I think that's where we're going to see the change really come from.
0: Well, you did what I thought might be impossible a few minutes ago, is ended on a bit of an up note. So thank you for that. Thanks to all of you. We'll be right back. Stick around everyone. Uh, when we return our round table, we'll turn its focus to recent and upcoming elections. You're listening to America's 360. Hello and welcome back. I'm John Molesky and this is America's 360. Our roundtable will now turn its sight to elections and plenty of them, some that have just happened and some that are coming your way. Uh, Recent elections held in Ecuador and Peru and in one circumstance, we have a winner and another, we are headed toward a runoff. Gonna ask Cindy Arnson to start our discussion by telling us about those elections, Cindy.
4: Sure, John, as you mentioned on April 11th, Ecuador held the second round of its presidential election, and Peru held the first round. And the results in both cases really kind of upended the uh, the expectations and the and the predictions of pollsters. Uh, there was an, a sense in Ecuador that um, a protege of former president, populist president Rafael Correa, would win. He had won the first round. By about 12 points, you know, having a a, a lead of of over 12 points uh, over Guillermo Lasso, who who was elected president, um, and yet uh, Lasso triumphed and with a fairly comfortable margin, something like 52% to 47%. Um, and I think it was uh, the, the the indigenous movement and the candidate that very very closely uh, came in second for that second slot in the runoff, Yaku Perez. Uh, I think a lot of Perez's supporters went over to um, to Lasso and put the indigenous movement in a different kind of position than it has been. They also have a large block of um, um, in the Congress and Lasso will have a lot of trouble, I think, you know, uh, governing the markets, of course, were very happy. He is a... Uh, member of the private sector, a former banker, um, has pledged to live by the terms of the IMF agreement that was signed uh, by the last government in, in, uh, in Ecuador. Um, but, you know, we'll have to raise taxes. One of the easiest things that people do rather than making wealthy people pay higher taxes is increase what's called the VAT tax which is essentially a sales tax extremely regressive um that is likely to be very unpopular and you know at some point i mean ecuador like peru uh suffered tremendously in terms of the percentage of deaths as a percentage of total cases um Both economies heavily dependent on commodity exports, again, um, you know, slammed by the pandemic with really uh, larger than the median um, um, decline in the economy. Uh, Peru, I think, was even more of a surprise. Uh, The person that came in first, Pedro Castillo, a left-wing teacher, was not even sort of listed. His name didn't even appear in the polls that had the top, you know, five or six candidates, um, you know, going into this first round. Um, And Keiko Fujimori, uh, who has been around for a long time, the daughter of the former president, Alberto Fujimori, um, condemned uh, to a long prison sentence because of human rights violations and corruption uh, during his government. Um, You know, she's back, she came in second place, but what's probably the most striking takeaway from the Peru election is that the number of blank and null votes that were cast um, exceeds the number of votes that were that were cast for the front runner and therefore the second runner. And another sort of key takeaway is that if you combine the votes of number one and number two of Castillo and, and Keiko Fujimori, you don't get more than a third of the Peruvian electorate which means that two-thirds of the Peruvian electorate doesn't want either of them. So it's really a, a, a big question mark what is going to happen going into June 6th. I think a lot of people are um, appalled to have uh, a choice between what many see as uh, equal poisons. So we'll have, to, we'll have to see what
0: happens over these next weeks. It's not unusual in an elections to vote against someone, but what you describe is, is that idea on steroids. Uh, Castillo, 19 percent, Fugamore, 13 percent, 18 candidates were available for the, the initial choice. Benjamin, about that, maybe before we, we dig deeper into some of the elections, if you could just talk about that, you know, we the, the Wilson Center is U.S.-based and a, and a big chunk of our audience tends to be in the United States. Uh, certainly, our, some of our focused audiences like the U.S. Congress, you know, when you look at American politics, winning 50 or 51 percent often is still a difficult formula for governing. Here we're talking about the frontrunners with 19 and 13 percent and 18 on the ballot. Give our U.S. viewers some perspective on how different that type of equation is.
3: Well, John, I mean, they have a system in these countries, which we don't have in the United States, which is multiple rounds in the election. And the idea of that is supposed to allow voters to coalesce around a candidate. A winning candidate eventually will have a majority of the electorate and theoretically could moderate their agenda and their platform in order to achieve you know, a broader coalition. So that's sort of the good story of what could occur. The reality is anytime you have an election where you're choosing between el mal menor, the, the lesser of two evils, it's not a great way to inspire the... electorate, particularly if you have a divided Congress, as you'll have in these cases. And so, you know, you have a real crisis of representation that Cindy referenced earlier in our conversation, and you will not solve that and strengthen democracies if people are so appalled by their options that the top, you know, voted candidate is the null ballot, either abstaining, even though voting is obligatory, or simply spoiling your ballot. So, uh, yeah, I think in the U.S. context, you're right, John, we have a a lot of polarization, and we're seeing that in Latin America, despite, again, the multiple... uh, stages in the elections that are supposed to solve that.
0: Cindy, when will round two take place?
4: Round two takes place on June 6th. So it's uh, less than two months away and there will be a lot of flux. But one thing that is also notable is that Castillo's election base was mostly in the highlands. I mean, Peru for centuries, you know, has had this divide, as has Ecuador, between uh, the highlands and the coastal areas. And Keiko probably has a plurality in Lima, the capital city, Um, and Castillo's support is in these rural areas. And that's why he did not register in the polls, because that sort of uh, kind of opinion is not captured, you know, when people are making phone calls to a landline uh, to gauge voter intention.
0: Well, it certainly makes great soap opera, a virtually unknown teacher versus the the heiress to the dynasty. So let's, uh, let's turn our attention to Mexico. Andrew Rudman. Sure,
5: uh, the midterm elections are, are also on June 6th, uh, and Mexico will elect uh, over 21,000 offices on that day. It's the biggest election that Mexico has ever had, 15 governorships, the entire lower house of the Congress, and lots of other, uh, lots of other positions. Um, the current president, uh, AMLO, and his party are hoping to get a supermajority. They have a majority in, in the lower house, but hope to have a two-thirds majority. Uh, depending on who you ask, that either is or isn't likely to happen. Uh, prevailing wisdom at the moment seems to be that they won't quite get the two-thirds. Uh, but I think there are a number of really interesting issues that we're looking at around that election. One is the role of women and how they will vote and, and how certain candidates will fare. Um, another is the independence of institutions. The president and his party have attacked the uh, National uh, Elections Institute, have suggested that it, that it is not impartial, and have even uh, some candidates have threatened violence against the INE. Uh, so that's obviously of great concern. And then the last point that we're looking at has to do with how Mexico may respond. Uh, In terms of its international commitments, particularly the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, some of the measures that AMLO would like to push forward if he has a a supermajority would likely uh, go in contrast to the USMCA uh, terms.
0: Along the lines of what we've been discussing, will this election turn on reaction to handling of the pandemic? How dominant will that issue be?
5: Not as not as dominant as you might guess, given the way Mexico has handled the pandemic. I mean, one interesting statistic I, I saw recently is that, as you might guess, Amlo's popularity is greater among people who have been vaccinated. So there's a huge push to vaccinate as many people as possible. Uh, the whole vaccination campaign has been politicized in in Mexico in in unhelpful ways.
0: Uh, but probably not as dominant as as you might. So guess. it's not a chicken in every pot. It's a hypodermic needle in every arm is the, <laughs> the promise here. Uh, Chris, turning to Canada, I, I guess we're talking about potential elections. Tell us what's happening in Canada.
1: Well, sure, John. So normally um, you have an election in Canada in the fourth year of a five-year mandate. They switched to fixed elections a couple of years ago. And um, so we have a fairly predictable scene. However... The current government of Justin Trudeau is a minority government, and the typical duration of a minority government in Canada is about 24 months. So as we're just crossing into month 18, everyone's been expecting that Trudeau might call an election as a way to increase his majority and have a freer hand in managing the pandemic, among other things. Um, We had a budget on Monday, uh, April 19, that was a perfect pre-election budget. Lots of spending for lots of uh, different uh, priorities, but not any big increase in taxes. And while in general, that's a good signal before an election makes the voters very happy, there's a lot of concern in Canada that the money's maybe not going into the best best investments. And so the opposition has a chance to say, we're going to, we're going to try to bring the government down on a budget vote. Now, I think that's a very long shot, maybe 10% chance. But the advantage of doing that for the opposition parties is they could then have first crack at forming a government without an election. The conservatives have 120 seats. Uh, they only they could govern in, a, in an even weaker minority, but have the ability to rack up some points uh, and send Trudeau into the opposition benches. That's probably the excitement, uh, as high as the excitement ever gets in Canada for politics. We think the election may be in June. It could be delayed until August or September if the government just doesn't feel its poll numbers are are great. But the first step is to see how the budget is voted on by the parliament. I'll just add one thing in light of some of my colleagues' comments, though. We've had two recent elections in Canada that show very similar trends to what we're seeing elsewhere. The first one in Newfoundland um, took place on March 25th. And because of a COVID surge right before the vote, the government canceled all in-person voting, delayed the election by two weeks, and shifted entirely to mail-in ballots. Now, Newfoundland's a small place with a small population, but that sudden change brought a change in government and a very uh, narrowly divided parliament. Proposed with that kind of challenge, people split right down the middle, something we're seeing elsewhere, uh, with not a strong governing majority. Similarly. Uh, In April, on April 12th, just last week, the Yukon Territory had an election. It, too, divided exactly evenly with one jurisdiction uh, up in the northern part of the Yukon Territory voting 78 votes to 78 votes, dead tie. And they had a judicial recount, which was mandated, which found it was still tied. And so what ended up happening was they drew straws and it turned out that the NDP the New Democratic Party candidate won the election but that parliament uh, is so tightly divided that the Yukon is going to have to be governed by consensus going forward so minority governments or uh, dead ties this seems to be part of the new politics of covid in canada at least
0: thanks chris we we're we're short on time but before we close we're going to run over a little bit I'd like to know just anyone who'd like to throw any other thoughts into the mix about what we've been talking about. Other elections we haven't mentioned or teed up that might be coming the way that you're going to be keeping an eye on. Maybe some of the broader trends. I know, Benjamin, I'll pull back the curtain for people who are listening. And in our chat function, Benjamin mentioned that there's some good news here and that elections are taking place in the midst of a pandemic. So any things that you'd like to add to the discussion before we close things out?
3: I mean, I just said, John, they're not just taking place, but they're generally free and fair. You have, you know, the opposition in October in Bolivia won an election and there was, you know, no protests, no violence. You know, you've had two elections in Ecuador, one in Peru. And, you know, in Ecuador, you had the, you know affiliates of a former populist, you know, somewhat authoritarian movement accept the results right away. And again, no questioning the quality of the vote. This is in despite, you know, the, the pandemic conditions that make it very tough to hold elections. They don't have the options that Chris was describing to do voting by mail. And yet people are showing up and the systems are working.
4: I, I might take a little bit exception to that, Benjamin, because I think, you know, for a long time um people in latin american studies have pushed back against the notion that democracy is equivalent to the holding of elections and i agree with you that you know people's willingness to brave the pandemic and stand in line uh, for a long period of time uh, is really commendable um, in 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 the face of uh, the dangers, the actual physical dangers that they face. Um, but you know, just holding an election that is reasonably free, free and fear, fair, and having the uh, opponent or the losing party recognize the fairness of the election or the outcome of the election, to me, just really begs the question of you know. Uh, the content of democracy, the quality of democracy, um, this whole issue of whether pe- people feel represented uh, by their systems. And I think most of the indicators on that front are, are fairly um, pessimistic.
0: Cindy, I think you've teed up a terrific future topic for us about how we measure the health of democracies beyond a ballot box. Good stuff. Any, any other fi- quick final thoughts before we close things out? Okay. Everyone has had their say. We have, what have we fixed? Have we solved any problems? I know we, we talk about things, but we're not here to, to <laughs> act on them. But if elected, well, no, thanks, everyone. Cindy, Anya, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, thank you very much for your insights. Always valuable. And we look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center at America's 360, I'm John Moleski, Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.